Morning church, good to see everybody here, great singing, fun to hear you sing together. If you're a guest with us, my name's Kelly. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor and opening God's word uh, for us this morning. Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to the book of Hebrews, New Testament book. We begin a, a new series titled Greater Than this morning. The summary of the series would go something like this, the salvation God has worked through Jesus Christ is greater than all previous works in redemptive history. So God, you know, the minute um, humanity was disobedient in the Garden of Eden, he, uh, frankly, before the foundations of the world, he sent Christ. So he had this plan that was unfolding over time and space, throughout time and space, and Christ is the culmination of the plan to draw us back into relationship. In short, God's saving work culminates in the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews teases out the many ways in which Jesus is greater than or superior to the previous works of God in salvation history. So here's the opening of the book, Hebrews 1.1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. So the the target audience uh, originally was the Hebrew communion, the Jewish believers that have uh, come to faith in Christ uh, out of Israel. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior, greater than, the angels, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. One of the most important questions that we can or need to ask and answer for ourselves is, how has God made himself known to us? How's he revealed himself to us? And the first answer to this question is in creation. God's made himself known to us by what he has created. The gorgeous 90-degree September day we're going to have, right? Uh, as a Texan, this is, this is great stuff, right? So he's, you walk outside, you can see the beauty of, of God's handiwork. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens preach would be another way to say it. They proclaim. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. God's speaking to us through what's been made. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Can we know everything there is to know about God from creation? No, that's not the claim. Not any more than we can know everything there is to know about Picasso by looking at his art. Now, we can know something about Picasso from looking at his art. We can know, for example, that he had a depressed period, what's called his blue period. This is the blue guitarist. I think it's actually titled the old guitarist. And the same is true about God's creation. The Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of his New Testament letter to the Romans, says there are a number of things that we can know about God from creation. Number one, we can know he, he exists. We walk outside today, 
And none of us should have the, the sense that, oh, look what I made. <laughs> I'm responsible for creation. No, not at all. It's fairly intuitive that we didn't do this. Somebody else did this. So we can know that God exists. We can know that he's powerful. You stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You get this sense of finiteness. You get this sense of overwhelming power. We can know that he's perfect in his being. Creation, right? Uh, Genesis 1, right? It was created. It was good. It was good. It was, there's a benediction, a good word. To dictate is to give a word. So a good word, a bene, good, beneficial word at the end of each day of creation rather than a maldiction, a bad word, right? It was good. We can see that creation is beautiful, that it's good. And then we have this sense that we're without excuse, that we're responsible. Here's Paul's exact words out of Romans. He says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what qualities are those? His eternal power and his divine nature. We can know that he's powerful and he's divine, They've been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that we're without excuse. We have to, we have a responsibility to respond, in other words, to what we observe in creation, the glorious seasons, right? Fall is coming, a favorite season, right? We have a responsibility to respond to what's described as general revelation. That is, the revelation made available generally to everybody of the existence of God, his power, his divinity, and our responsibility. At the same time, God hasn't simply revealed himself generally. He's also spoken a very special word, a very personal word. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is opening with. In, past, in the past, God spoken to our ancestors through the prophets, he spoke at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken through the Son. If you're an underliner, you may make sure to underline or circle the word spoke and spoken, this reality, namely that God speaks, is at the heart of biblical revelation. Those who are trusting in Christ do so because they believe the testimony of Scripture that God's spoken in times past, through the prophets, in various ways. So that he speaks is, is at the heart that, that our creator talks to us. Is at the heart of biblical revelation. The creator of all things makes himself available to us. He wants to be known by us and to know us which means we can hear him and we can respond to him. We can interact with him. We can have a dialogue with him. This is beautiful and comforting as a reality. You're right, to give someone the silent treatment, you're in a fight with a loved one, you give them the silent treatment is really kind of the death, albeit hopefully short term, to the relationship. If you don't talk with somebody, then you don't have a relationship. God has spoken. The expectation is that we will respond. In fact, we've done so this morning already. We've done so in song. We've responded to the revelation of God. We've talked back to him. We've entered the dialogue with our creator as a community. We did it through our, our communion reflection. We obeyed the word that Christ gave to us, the 
to remember the symbolism of broken body and shed blood in bread and in cup. We've entered the dialogue. We've entered relationship. There's a back and forth, an ebb and flow with our Creator. We are known by Him, and we can know Him because He speaks. Many in this room this morning are waiting to hear from God, in fact, on any number of topics, particular matters that we feel are urgent, right? Front burner issues, and we're listening, wanting to hear from him. What does he say about this matter or that matter? We do so because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. We can hear from God. That's what prayer is. It's not wishful thinking. It's a dialogue with the one who, Psalm 139, knit us together, knows us intimately, the hairs on our head numbered. Prayer is this rich dialogue of not just talking at and lecturing God about what we want and how things are going poorly from our vantage point, right? But it's also sitting quietly and listening. There's a beloved story in the Old Testament of God speaking to the prophet Elijah. Well-known story, the prophet's terrified. He learns that Jezebel, the wife of the then king Ahab, king of Israel, is out to kill him. So Elijah runs. He runs into the wilderness to escape. There he collapses in exhaustion, and God sends his angels to strengthen Elijah. After he's strengthened, Elijah enters this dialogue with God, but it's, it's a dialogue of complaint. God has just sent his angels to strengthen Elijah, and once Elijah regains his strength, he does some finger-wagging. I'm the only prophet left. There's no one else faithful in all Israel. I find it fascinating how God responds to the finger-wagging he receives from Elijah. Kind of this... This prophetic rebuke, right? You've not done your job, God. I'm the only faithful prophet in all of Israel. What are you up to? You've let your side down. The response of God's on the screen. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. Wind came, but he wasn't there. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper, a voice. A voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulls his cloak over his face, and he went out to to stand at the mouth of the cave, to be in the Lord's presence, to hear from the Lord. Yes, God can do the miraculous. He can cause powerful winds to shatter rocks, send earthquakes to shake the ground, send fire to consume, right? The the first three, wind, earthquake, fire. It's the power of God. They're not coincidence. God sends these powerful things. But the powerful things aren't actually God. Are y'all with me here? We want God to do things for us. I get it. I've got those things in my own life. But God gives us more than the miracles. 
He gives us himself. That's the good news of the gospel. He gives us himself. In a room this size, many of us have received miracles. I've had miracles in my own life, things that can only be explained by the direct intervention of God. Frankly, and if you're going to be put a finer point on, that you woke up this morning is a miracle according to the revelation of God. He sustains everything by the, the power of his word. But it's not just the miracles God gives us. It's not just creation and and children and marriages and the wealth of families, and I mean that relationally. God actually gives us himself. You see, what's most amazing about his interaction with Elijah is Elijah comes at God. You've not held up your end of the bargain. Israel's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm the only prophet that's left. And God says, come out here and stand on the edge of the mountain. If I'm Elijah, I'm like, ooh, it's not going to go well. And the miracles come, the wind that shatters rocks and the earthquakes and the fire, they come, but the Lord's not in them. The Lord speaks this word. He speaks this word. In other words, he's vulnerable with Elijah. He makes himself available to Elijah. And he gives him direction and he gives him encouragement. And Elijah, based on the direction he receives and the encouragement, he goes on and he he identifies, he anoints some kings and he identifies Elisha to take over his ministry. So it's a a catalyst to finish well for Elijah. This gentle whisper, this intimate revelation, this vulnerable experience with God, even after he just got through finger-wagging. I find that tremendously comforting. It's comforting because we need direction. We need encouragement. Rest assured, God has spoken in times past through the prophets in various ways. He's spoken finally through Christ our Savior, ultimately culminating in the revelation of Christ, and he continues to speak to us by his Holy Spirit. It's interesting, you know, if you think about the, the speaking work, the, the act of speaking in our lives, it's very hard to be in relationship with somebody you don't communicate with. Arguably, you don't have a relationship with someone you don't communicate with. Or it's a stilted or immature or stunted relationship. In fact, you think about communication and the care of communities, and one of the, the primary reasons I didn't want to be a pastor is I didn't want to do this work. And the reason I didn't want to do this work is because you feel really vulnerable. At some point, I'll say something stupid, right? Right, there's a lot of vulnerability. People would rather be dead. I mean, statistically, they say I'd rather die than... I'd rather face death than speak publicly. There's this vulnerability in offering people your words, making public what's on the interior, right? Whether it's one-to-one, one-to-a-few, or one-to-many, there's this vulnerability, and God offers himself to us. He gives us his word. He speaks to us. 
How does he speak? All right, so he spoke through the prophets. What are prophets? God's, uh, prophets are God's spokespeople. God speaks to a prophet, then the prophet made it public, the thoughts, intentions, plans, purposes of God. In his second letter to the church, Peter, the apostle, describes the, uh, the uh, prophetic work. He says, above all, you must understand there's no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. Uh, men didn't dream up these words. In fact, most prophets didn't want the job. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit prompted them, moved them, gave them things to say, this is the work of prophecy. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. What we have today isn't uh, the volitional... Um, it, it wasn't uh, st uh, started by men. It wasn't something that the men thought of. It was something that the Spirit moved them to say and then was captured and written down. When we think of prophets, we think of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Elijah and Ezekiel. Their ministries were long and influential. We should also think of women, though, who fulfilled this role. Deborah, Miriam... Holda. And these prophets, they often spoke God's word at great personal sacrifice, declaring God's purposes and plans. Peter says that the biblical prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is to say, by God's leading, they outlined God's purposes and plans of redemption. Much like a syllabus, I like to compare it to a course syllabus. A syllabus outlines a professor's purposes for a class. Prophecy outlined God's plans and purposes for his people. I can remember registering for classes in college, knowing full well that once I got a look at the syllabus, I may drop the class if the syllabus looked too daunting. The problem, though, with my immaturity in college was that there were several classes I decided to drop because the syllabus looked overwhelming and my buddies would stay in the class and I'd, only, I'd always hear from them, wow, the professor's amazing, or the insights gained are, are stunning, that type of thing. Here's the point. The primary role of the syllabus is not simply to disclose what's ahead for the semester or what will be expected of the students. The primary role of the syllabus is to reveal the intentions of the professor for the student. The primary role of a syllabus is to reveal the goals, desires, hopes, dreams that a professor has for their students' learning. Prophecy, maybe you've heard before, you really don't take classes, you take professors. Have you heard that saying? We, always, we all want a professor that, that is life-changing, that's offering us insight and wisdom. Prophecy is more about revealing God than revealing the future. Prophecy doesn't simply outline future plans and purposes. It does that for sure, but it's ultimately about revealing his character, his person. He's making himself known. In fact, you may remember the prophet Jonah who didn't want to go to Nineveh. In fact, he dropped the class. Jonah did, when he saw the syllabus. Now, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to speak to Nineveh, an enemy city of Israel. I'm not going to go do that. 
And so he runs the other direction. He drops the class. I don't like that. Why did he drop it? Well, the syllabus looked overwhelming, and he knew the professor to be a, an easy grader, interestingly enough. Here are Jonah's words when he finally does what he's told and preaches to a, a, an enemy city, calling them to repentance. He says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? He's frustrated with what God's done. That is showing mercy towards Nineveh, who were enemies of Israel. This is, what I, this is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. That's who our God is. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Jonah saw the syllabus of preaching to an enemy city, and he, he didn't like what it revealed. He, he wanted God to stick it to the enemies, his enemies. And he, so he failed in many respects as a prophet because he didn't represent God accurately. In fact, if you read the book of Jonah, I think it's chapter 4, in which he actually gets around to preaching, it's a stunningly short sermon. He's in the streets of Nineveh saying, hey, repent, God's going to destroy this city. It's really short. I wonder if he didn't really want to see the repentance at all or the opportunity for repentance. In other words, kind of a, an obedience without the heart in it. To prove that God wants to be known by us, he didn't stop by simply speaking through prophets. God himself came in the flesh. The final and greatest revelation comes through God's Son, Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says that in times past, God's spoken through the prophet, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. And then the first few verses, verses 2, 3, and 4, outline how Jesus is greater than, the superiority of Christ. And on the screen is a little chart that takes each of those. I think it'd be great to memorize this if, if you don't have that discipline. These attributes of who our Savior is for us are powerful reminders. He's appointed heir of all things through whom God made the universe. The Son's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as his name, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. What I've tried to do on this little slide is cross-reference Christ's own comments about who he is with the writer of Hebrews. So I've gone into the Gospels and I've pulled out uh, times when Jesus said about himself the same thing that the writer of Hebrews is affirming about who Jesus is. Because it's one thing for the writer of Hebrews to say this is who Jesus is. It's a whole other matter for Jesus to say this is who he is. In other words, the writer of Hebrews, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but it's, it's, a, it's one thing for him to say this, but we need to know he's not pulling this out of a vacuum. He's not making this up. No, this is what those who walked with Christ heard him say about himself. 
So when the author says that the Son was appointed heir of all things, what he's saying is Jesus possesses all things. Jesus has authority over all things. All things are his. In Matthew 28, as right before he ascends into heaven, Jesus says as much. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. On this basis, go and help others follow me. Go make more disciples. And when the author of Hebrews wrote that it was through the Son of God that the universe was made, Jesus made a very similar claim in John 8, 12. I find this so fascinating. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, what might that have to do with the creation claim? In Genesis 1, the first thing created is light. God says, let there be light. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who started this. It was through me that all things were created. Isn't that fascinating? The author of Hebrews says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And in John 10, 3, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Plus, Peter, James, and John actually witnessed Christ in his glory during the transfiguration, Matthew 17. The author of Hebrews says the Son is the exact representation of God. Where might he have gotten that notion? Well, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The exact representation. often think that the second commandment, don't make any images of me, given to the Israelites, is given in part because God knew he was going to give us the exact representation of himself. Don't make any images of me. I'm coming myself. The Son is the sustainer of all things by his powerful word. John 14, 10, we learn Jesus, that Jesus uh, did not speak on his own authority. The connection between God the Son and God the Father was so thick that Jesus says, I speak what I hear my Father saying. It's the Father living in me, doing this work. The Son is the provider of purification for sin. We've already celebrated this this morning. In Matthew 26, Jesus offers the cup at the end of the Passover meal. He says, take, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew exactly why he was going to die. And then the son is seated at the right hand of God. In Mark 14, we read the high priests interrogating Jesus at the trial. And Jesus says, you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. Not only did he know he was going to die and why he was going to die, but he knew that he would ascend, he'd be seated at the right hand of God. Finally, the son is superior to the angels. And the balance of the chapter, verses 5 through 14, is a comparison and contrast between the ministry of God's son and the angels, created beings. The author of Hebrews harkens back to Old Testament passages, I have a little table here for us, and I'll have Grant put this up on the website under the sermon notes. I know some of the people for small group discussion pull the sermon notes down. But there are seven passages referenced from the Old Testament in the balance of the first chapter that compare and contrast Jesus with angelic beings, saying they're not the same. There was a fair bit of, uh, just as there is today still, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus is Michael the archangel incarnate. 
So there's a fair bit of, you know, people are enamored in the 21st century with angelic beings, much as they were in the first century. Part of the reason Israel was so enamored with angelic beings were because of accounts like when Elijah was ministered to by the heavenly angels, given strength, but also because the law was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy 33, by angelic beings. Twice it said in the New Testament, the law was received by angelic beings. And so there was some pressure, it appears, in the first century, upon the first century Christ followers, to denigrate his being and say, well, he's really just an exalted angel. And the writer of Hebrews wants, to know, wants us to know, no, that's not the case. He's not an exalted angel. He's the Son. He's the exact representation of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's God in the flesh. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. And so he goes into great pains to spell this out in the balance of the chapter. He's greater than the ministering spirits who are angels. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Many believe that this is a reference by Jesus to witnessing himself, witnessing the rebellion of the heavenly host in their condemnation, them being cast out of heaven. So what are we to make of all this? Well, we're to believe. We're to believe the testimony of the author of Hebrews based on the testimony of Christ about who he is. And we're to trust, we're to believe, and we're to trust him with our lives. And we're to speak with him. Folks, in no uncertain terms, God has spoken. He's spoken through creation. He's spoken in times past through the prophets. He's spoken finally through his son. And he's still speaking by his Holy Spirit. We're to speak back to him. In some respects, that's what singing is. It's a response to what God has done in saving us throughout redemptive history. Maybe it's making sense for the first time, there's clarity that you've not had before, your mind has been opened, and you're understanding the significance of who Jesus is. And in a way you've never done before, you want to speak. That's the appropriate response. We've been spoken to by God. The appropriate response is to speak back to him, to enter relationship with him, to begin a dialogue of trust with him that's ongoing for the rest of your life. And you can, you can begin that, if you've never done that before, by saying, I believe you're the exact representation of God in the flesh, and that you lived a sinless life, and died a sacrificial death, and were raised victorious over the grave. That's who Christ is. You can respond to Jesus' own claims about who he is by talking to your creator. I'm the light of the world, Jesus said. I was there at the beginning. I was the one who got it all started. Maybe you've long since done that. You've started that dialogue with God that's going to be eternal, frankly. If you've got that trust dialogue going on, your eternity has started it, and you're already in a relationship with God, and you're depending on his son as he's directed. But without a doubt, you, you still need direction, encouragement. Let me pray for us that we would hear 
we'd hear from God. My sheep hear my voice. Our Father's still talking to us by his Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we pray for your goodness to us as a people. Open our ears. Give us the ability to hear your gentle whisper. I think of so many things that compete in my life with your voice. I pray, Father, that you'd open our ears. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit's saying to us. Encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Let's respond verbally to what God's done for us.